Welcome to the Lucky Let Court Podcast, a Tennis Now production sponsored by Tennis Express and a proud member of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Chris Otto, happy to be with you on Friday, January 15th, a week of tennis in the books, the 2021 tennis season underway. Not the best circumstances worldwide in terms of the coronavirus pandemic, which is still, unfortunately, raging and wreaking havoc around the globe. But we did have tennis, and we will have more tennis in about two or three weeks at the Australian Open. Of course, there's a couple lead-up events in the week before the Australian Open. And here to talk about it today are my good friends and colleagues, Eric Goodris and Richard Pagliaro from TennisNow.com. We're going to have a nice discussion, break down what we saw in week one. Titles won by Arena Sabalenka. What a thrilling title that was at Abu Dhabi. Alex Dimonor in Antalya and Hubert Herkacz in Delray Beach. He defeated Sebastian Corda in the final there. So lots to talk about, lots to look forward to, some controversy on the days leading up to the Australian Open quarantine and lots of events and things to look forward to. We're going to try to bring you up to date on everything right now. So please join us as we discuss the sport that we love. Take it away, boys. All right, we got the gang back together. It's Eric Goodris and Richard Pagliaro. Our first chat of the year and our first one since Roland Garros 2020. Very nice to be speaking with you guys. How's it going, Eric? It's going well, Chris. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. And how's it going, Richard? How are you? We guys, we're all live and we're on the three-way Skype again. The miracle of technology is with us. I'm ecstatic that we all survived uh, 2020. I'm really happy to be here. <laughs> we, did, we did make it in 2021. It's bumpy start. It's not great in the U.S. It's not great worldwide, but vaccines are coming and hopefully we'll be able to kind of see, see the light at the end of the tunnel soon and maybe second half of the year when things will start looking up. But in the meantime, there's lots of tennis to talk about. We have a week of um, exciting results to go over, which were really it was really cool to see some live tennis again and uh, get us pumped up for the Australian Open. And now we've got a big break, waiting for these players to quarantine and get back on the court in a couple weeks. Um, so let's start with a subject that is kind of hot and heavy and you know slightly controversial. It's Tennis Sandgren, the Americans and their and their aviation escapades. This time it was Tennis Sandgren nearly not being able to make the flight to Melbourne because of a positive COVID test. It turns out, and I'm quoting from the Australian Open here, he, he ends up being a recovered case. So despite a positive COVID test, he's, he's declared a recovered case and, and is allowed to, f- to fly. People are freaking out. Twitter is freaking out. Richard, are you freaking out? Freaking out all the time. Uh, it was it was an it was a strange thing because he had, the initial statement was he had it he had COVID over Thanksgiving right. Yep. So I, I think what he was saying was it was a false positive. That that's how I interpreted it. That he was saying that it was a false positive, but the test was still positive. So obviously, you know, even though the planes the charter planes I think they're at twenty five percent capacity, you still don't want anybody who's shedding or anybody with any trace of it on the plane. So I definitely understand why people are freaking out. But my understanding is that they have his medical records and that they reviewed it. So I I just don't think they'd take that kind of risk unless they felt he he was safe because it's just a public relations, you know, fiasco when you have actual Australian citizens who are having trouble getting back into Australia and you're letting tennis players in. These people... You know, they all have to be healthy and safe. It's it, I, I definitely understand the controversy, but let's put it that way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, um, the medical file, and I'm quoting again from the Australian Open, had to be reviewed by Victorian health authorities. So they took a good hard look at this. Yes, people were going crazy, and for all the reasons you just mentioned, um, I, partic- I personally just – Rather than react, I kind of got on the internet and tried to find out as much as I could. And also PCR tests were the, are the thing that is kind of a blind spot for me. And Tennis Sangren pointed out that they are the, quote, gold standard. And he said that sarcastically. So he's got issues with PCR tests. It's a complex situation. Um, Eric, what did you think when you were watching this happen? And what do you think now that it, I guess Sangren has safely landed? Though I don't think we've heard from him on Twitter yet. You there, Eric? 
I'm here. Cool. Yeah, I was. I was <laughs> sorry. I was pointing it over to you. I want to get your take on this one. Um, yeah, I was just going to add. Um, it's sort of interesting. Like we go back to Roland Garros and like the whole deal of say Fernando Verdasco, who um, you know tested positive and then he claimed it was a false positive, but then he was forced out of he was forced out of the event and then he said he was going to sue the event. Um, it sounds like to me that the Australian Open officials are giving having a little more leeway. It used to be like if you tested positive, that was it. You couldn't compete. And now it's they're sort of like, well, we're going to, we're going to leave it up to the health officials. And it's like they're, they're, they're trying to have a little more leeway within the rules to let these players play, even if they had tested positive in the past. So um, it's hard to say, you know, we'll see what, like, what happens with Andy Murray and his situation. Um, so it's, it just like, feels like to me, like this time around the Australian open is, is trying to uh, have more leeway and letting more players play. Whereas like earlier during this whole pandemic, it was like, if you tested positive, like there was, it was no go. Yeah. That's perfect, Eric. That I thought that myself and I, and I thought, well, great, that's good. They got a hold of the science. They're very confident. Then again, I think a lot of us were surprised because we weren't expecting it. We were all thinking, okay, Australia is the strictest that there is. They're going by the book. They're really careful about keeping cases down to pretty much ground zero over there. And so that, I think, a lot of people were caught off guard when they saw the news, and especially Sandgren, who we know is a little bit controversial. But you make a good point, Eric. They're a little bit more flexible. They didn't really commit to locking Andy Murray out of this event yet, and he tested positive or revealed that he had tested positive yesterday. So I think... It's good. It's good that they're being flexible and, and using the science, and let's just hope it all works out because, um, I mean, it's just it would be really unfortunate if Sandgr- if they were wrong about Sandgren and some other players tested positive that didn't want to. And so I'll be curious to see how it turns out and what people say about him when we start to talk to the players and what Sandgren himself says. It's going to be fun. Uh, any final thoughts on this one? Because it is a really interesting topic, and I think it's going to be – it's going to kind of set the tone for the next few days and what's happening in quarantine here. Well, Sanguine's played great in Australia in the past, so it's if he, you know, if, he, if everything's copacetic, if he's healthy and everything, it's a good, it's a good start for him because he's played well there. It's just it was interesting reading his tweets, how he was kind of in a limbo state of suspense right up until the, you know, you're reading, he's like, I'm here, I'm not on the plane, then I'm on the plane, but my bags aren't chased. So it was like right up until the last minute. He didn't. He himself didn't know how how it was going to end, and he credited Craig Tiley with, uh, you know, with exerting the influence to get him over the finish line. Let's hope for the best. Yeah, and another point I'll make out of, off of this is we didn't know Sandgren tested positive over Thanksgiving, just like we didn't know Fernando Verdasco had once tested positive before Roland Garros. And I think transparency is something we've seen people talk about in the media over the last few weeks. Like, why not have a little bit of transparency with these players so they're not catching us off guard? I think the Australian Open might have known about Sandgren's test, but... Um, yeah, it would be nice if players would reveal the minute they do test positive so we know, and then you're going to think, okay, Sandgren's going to be an issue when he gets on this plane and won't be such a shock. Um, any final thoughts on, um, from you, Eric, on this topic? Um, well, the only thing I can add is that, I mean, I, I certainly hope that, you know, once play gets underway at the Australian Open that we don't have a scenario like there was in qualifying where a player, someone learns that they've tested positive, like, during the middle of a match. Yeah, yes. And I guess that was the situation that happened with um, um, Dennis Kudler, right? Dennis, Dennis, Dennis Kudler. So, or, or say, for example, like there, there's a big match or a quarterfinal or even a, the final where a player tests positive before the match. Yeah. I mean, then what are they going to do? So we'll just have to wait and see. Yeah, I know. You're right. And it's going to be an interesting situation because they're going to clear quarantine in Australia and then they're going to be ready to roam around about with the public. So I think, I hope that they're careful. Uh, the uh, The idea is that everybody's going to be, you know, negative in, in the whole province of Victoria at the time. So they're 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 probably going to be loose, and you, you just never know these days. So yeah, it's it's still really up in the air and scary. Um, let's just hope that the results turn out. And yeah, that that qualifying scenario. I think it happened to two different players actually, if I'm not mistaken, was was a little bit weird. 
So many curveballs being thrown at these tournament directors. How about the worst year ever to be a tournament director? You know, the U.S. Open last year and, and Roland Garros and now Craig Tiley, what he's had to do over the last year. I mean, he's, he's basically probably working 24-7 between the government, the players, so much going on. Yeah, it's been really, really tough. And in both those organizations, cases like the USTA had heavy-duty layoffs, too. So you're, you know, you have your own staff and your own organization. These are the people's lives at stake, you know, how they're going to feed their families, health insurance, stuff like that. So you got to really credit them for, for trying to do all they can and try to be creative about it as well. Yeah. And, you know, I was going to bring this subject up towards the end of the show, but I think we're kind of segueing nicely into it now. How about the little uh, elite event that they've scheduled in Adelaide with Djokovic, Rafa, Naomi Osaka, like six elite players and a group of 50 that's quarantining separately in another area? That was a bit of a curveball, and I was surprised about it. And after being skeptical for a few days, I realized that this is probably more than anything about the money, there's so much money they can make with uh, you know having an elite event like that uh, and on January 29th where they can probably bring in a lot of fans and raise a lot of money. I think that was probably the number one motivator to do it this way. But, of course, there are worries about favoritism and having a separate quarantine where it might be more lenient for top players. And I wanted to get your guys' thoughts on that, starting with Eric. Well, I mean, you're probably right that they are, they are hosting it for – for the money, Cash basically, money. and to kind of take advantage of the opportunity, uh, but since it's Adelaide, which, you know, doesn't get as much uh, tennis um, during the Australian summer swing, so, um, and again, gives these top players sort of um, additional, even though it's an exhibition, I mean, it gives them um, additional kind of match play to kind of get in there and get, get underway, so... Um, you know, we'll see. I, I, I'm not going to read too much into it. I mean, hopefully everything goes well and it, it doesn't uh, impact the Australian Open in terms of quarantine and things like that. So I think it's just, um, we'll just see, you know, just it'd be good to see some of these players for the first time and just kind of see how they're hitting the ball more than anything else. Yeah, I agree. But Richard, what do you think about the fact that they might have a little bit more lenient quarantine? Do you think that's fair? Do you think they'll have the exact identical quarantines with the same strictness and be locked in their rooms 19 hours like they are going to be in Melbourne? Uh, you know, I have mixed emotions about it. I mean, the fan in me is super pumped. I want to see it, especially Absolutely. those players. They're all exciting players and remember there's no more Hotman Cup so maybe they'll find a way to, to mix in some mixed doubles so I'm excited to see them and see them compete but if I were a player you know a top 20 or beyond player yeah I'd, I'd definitely be pissed off because it seems like it's going to be a more lenient bubble not only that but who they choose as a hitting partner you know they could bring another pro into that bubble as a hitting partner that's my understanding I could be mistaken about that so it just does seem like it's a little bit of a of an advantage for those players i mean i can understand the rank and file not wanting it but to your point about the money it is a potentially huge money maker and i'd also say that the australian open has a history of doing really cool charity events like the bushfire they've done stuff for the great reef they've done stuff for ecology i mean they've done you know i don't want to say every single year but many many years they've done fundraisers and let's face it there's a time when we really need fundraisers so if it's going to make a ton of money to help fight the pandemic or whatever cause they choose i mean that's a great thing you can't you can't knock them for that yeah and maybe even help tennis australia which i think is going to be taking a hit financially you know absolutely so yeah yeah, in the the end let's wait and see it's going to be exciting it's going to be fun let's just hope the quarantines are kind of equal on both ends and they don't have any distinct advantages and and let them play and put them on TV because we'll be ready for tennis after a couple of weeks of pe- watching people exercise in their hotel rooms. Let's move on to, gosh, Arena Sabalenka. How good was she in Abu Dhabi? How good has she been over the last five, six months? And where is this all going to lead for her in 2021? Starting with you, Richard. Uh, I think she's she could win a major this year. I mean, really, the way she's playing right now, if she plays to this level, you know, she's got to be a favorite uh, for the Australian. I think they have her, the last odds that I saw, I think she was 10-1. to 1. She was behind Osaka and one other 
player. I mean, she's 15 matches in a row, three titles in a row, beating legitimately, you know, good players and looking super confident doing it. And, you know, the one part of her game in the past, we always knew she was explosive, but she could also implode emotionally. Sometimes I'm not seeing that in her. She seems to be able to really just stick with the plan and trust herself. And, you know, even when she, maybe her serve isn't clicking or one part of her game isn't clicking, her concentration, her composure is there, and she hits the ball big. She's fun to watch. She's an uh, aggressive attacking player. You know, I like her game. And uh, I eavesdropped on one of the pressers after, and Chris, you were asking her if she knew the the, the longest winning streak ever. And mm-hmm. she didn't know that. It sounded like she didn't even know her career long <laughs> winning streak until they told her. So she's a refreshing personality, too. I like watching her. Yeah, good. she's got a ways to go to catch up with Martina's 74 consecutive wins. She's at 15 now. She's world number seven. That's a new career high. She's just 22. Eric, were you moved by her performance? Do you think it bodes well for her in 2021? Um, definitely so. Um, again, it's it's all the question of if she can translate this into uh, possibly winning a major. I mean, I remember when she kind of had her kind of a breakthrough at the U.S. Open in 2018, and she yes. played that match against Naomi Osaka. And many people thought that whoever won that match would win the tournament. And of course, Osaka went on to win that match and and, and everything. So I, you know, the thing with Sabalenka, you know, she's always had the power, but. It's like her, in the past, her decision-making on the court, especially if she was down in a match or it's like she only had an A game, she didn't really have a B game. And I've watched many matches where you just want to scratch your head and you can't understand why she's making some decisions she's she made. But um, I think she's grown a lot. Obviously, she's had to deal with a lot in her personal life. You know, her, her father passed away, yeah. and, and so she's matured a lot, and I think that's definitely helped her game. And she's had like a a more rounded perspective about who she is as a person and as a player. So I think as she uh, matures, she can only get better, but we'll have to see. I mean, a major is a whole, a whole different ball game. And um, she goes in, she goes into Australian open. It's probably one of the favorites. So um, that's something yeah. she'll have to kind of deal with as well. Yeah, that'll be some pressure. And and she hasn't reached the major quarterfinal yet at this stage of her career. I think she's had 12 appearances in the Grand Slams. But she's won some big titles, a couple at Wuhan, um, another at Doha. I mean, it's not like she's been messing around and winning, like, tiny little titles. She's doing some – she's stepping up, and, and we know how good she is. We know she can pretty much compete with every – with anybody and i think eric you made a good point about her a game b game we didn't really have to see much b game and and really you don't have to see much b game the way she plays because she can take the racket out of anybody's hands but yeah maturity you guys both mentioned i think that's the key to her she's a little bit more relaxed a little bit more at ease with herself and is really focusing on not the results but just improving your game i saw a lot more drop shots from her a little bit more craft in her game which was nice so yeah i think I mean, I, it's kind of a curse to come into Australia after winning such a big title, but I think uh, it'll be fun to watch, and I think she can definitely break through, maybe hit that quarterfinal as a first step and then start moving on deeper into the slams over yeah. the next couple of years. Yeah, and also that she has the experience of winning a double U.S. Open doubles title with Mertens, and I think that kind of fits into Eric's point about the lack of the B game. Mertens is a totally different player, more of a control control specialist player so maybe some of that some of that influence may be like hey i don't have to rip every forehand you know 99 miles an hour near the line i can pull it back a little bit pull in the target a little bit and also she can volley i mean she can move forward in the court she's not afraid to do that and just to, to mix it up it makes her power it makes her big shot even that much more bigger when she can take some pace off play with a little more shape on the ball yep yeah good points there richard i think yeah, very much looking forward to what she can provide, uh, what she can do in the next uh, couple years, I think. At her age, I think she's really ready for a huge breakout, top five maybe, and start competing for those slams. Um, so it's fun. Yeah, that was really fun to watch her, and, and there was a lot of great tennis that we'll hit on a little bit later in the show at Abu Dhabi. That was a real fun event to watch. But how about we shift over to the stateside and talk about a player who didn't quite win the title but nearly did. It was Sebastian Corda, the 20-year-old 20, from the United States. He was pretty... Um, he was an eye-opener. He had a great follow-through at Delray Beach, reaching the final, his first career final, his first career semifinal, his first career quarterfinal, and was poised and charismatic the whole way through. What did you think of his performance, Eric? 
Oh, I thought it was great um, just um, to have that breakthrough, like you said, and definitely a player who keeps improving. There's so much upside. Um, I was I was very impressed with just like his his on court movement because he's so tall. Yeah. Um, and I think that uh, that's that's kind of refreshing to see. Uh, and uh, yeah, he's definitely got a lot of upside. Um, it's it's just all a matter of can he kind of take the next step. Uh, this this year and get those results and certainly working with I, I Agassi is looks like it's helped out a lot so um, yeah I was just impressed and like I said he definitely got a lot of upside for this year Eric do you get a sense that people are overhyping him or I mean it's the natural thing to do when a guy reaches a final at the age of 20 in his fifth ATP event right well yes and I think you know, because he's an American, there's always that additional pressure to to be the next one. And uh, you know, certainly that was an impressive performance against John Isner. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, again, he is he is among the, that group of, of younger Americans um, that everyone is kind of hoping to take that next step. And you know, that's going to be one of the storylines you have to watch this whole year. Is like, can can he or uh, like a Francis TFO or, or any of them kind of take that that next step mm-hmm. they um, to be a to be a to be a consistent factor at the big tournament yeah there's some names there right you mentioned TFO there's there's also Tommy Paul there's also Taylor Fritz there's also Riley Opelka there's like a lot of people that are kind of ready to take that next step and we're hoping that they can Richard what is your overall assessment of Sebastian Corda's game what makes him such a promising young player uh, I think what makes him such a young, uh, promising young player is the the ease of the power. Like he really, he he doesn't have to struggle to generate power. He's got natural pop off uh, off every shot, off the serve, off both both ground strokes. He's not a typical the aggressive American baseliner that we've seen in recent years that can't defend the backhand. He's got a beautiful backhand, and he can really slice the backhand. I thought that was a really good shot against Isner against the big guy when he came back in that match, and he did a little bit of that in the final, too. So I think he maybe has more variety and more poise and more court craft at age 20 than than the average American guy at age 20. But then again, you know, his dad's a Grand Slam champion. His mom was a top 40 player. So I think that, that, that that's all good. And also, I, I, just to pick up on what Eric said about the movement, you know, he's a really, really good hockey player, and I have a bias for tennis players who were great hockey players because you think of Borg, Edberg, Navratilova, Hingis was a skater. They just all understand how to move, get out of the corner. I just, I, I think that's a big, big point. asset for a guy of his size that he moves that well. For me, the, the, the issue is the consistency and also, you know, the, the, the injury. Is he going to be a guy that's going to be able, sometimes the taller, the bigger players, they're, they're more prone to lower body injuries. So it's just a question of you know, can he mature physically, get stronger and everything? But I think the game is there for sure. I mean, and like you said, Eric, you know, working with Agassi and grabbing, when I was watching him hit those slices, I'm like, imagine him and Steffi sliced a slice back and forth. And his shot tolerance, I thought, was much higher than I expected. I mean, he's able to hang in there in the longer rallies. You know, he sometimes slaps the forehand. I feel like sometimes he'll go for a little too much, but that's that's nothing he can't work i mean he's got shots he definitely has the shots i see a big future for him yeah i know i, th- I think it's it's easy to get excited about him i'm going to prolong this conversation a little bit and maybe even throw it back to you guys after i say what i'm going to say which is the intangibles the things that are happening off court for him um the fact that andre agassi hooked up with his dad and 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 invited them out to vegas for two weeks that he spent a quality two weeks this wasn't just a photo opportunity this was like dinner every night this was philosophizing. This was a lot of tennis. This was him hitting with Steffi Graf and being blown away by her forehand. And this, that's not the only thing that has happened with Sebastian Corda. He's also, as you mentioned, the hockey. He spends time with Zidane Chara, one of the best defensemen in the history of the NHL, gets to like, you know, spend time with these top athletes. And it sounds like his dad and his mom are facilitating all this great stuff for their kid. They're, they're putting everything behind him. He's also got his two sisters, which are elite professional golfers. There's just a lot of stuff happening off the court for him that's keeping him in a good mind frame. And now with comp- with the confidence that he's getting from Agassi, he really is just a believer in himself. They're putting, be- they're injecting self-belief into him, and it shows. And I think that's why, that's in addition to his talent, which is clearly there, I think he's got more room on the serve. As Brad Gilbert pointed out, he could probably get up in the high 120s. You see him rarely in the 120s now. 
there's a lot of upside as well. So I don't know. I just think, am I getting carried away with this or do these intangibles matter? What do you, what do you think about that stuff, Eric? I think all that matters. Again, I think it's just um, like we've seen with so many other young American players um, that kind of get some momentum. It's kind of kind of what they do with it. And uh, like I said, they have to stay healthy as well. That's a big issue, big factor as well. Um, so I, you know, I've, I, my instinct is to like wait and see um, because we've been down this road before with so many young American mm, men. Now we have. Um, you yeah, have yeah. To, just have to take it, take it, you know, take it, see how the year pans out. Yeah. Final thoughts on it, Richard? Well, I would say to go back to Eric's point earlier about Sabalenka, he made a good point about making the right choices, and I think just his choice to play Delray, that was a smart choice, obviously, because he got to the final, but he could have, you know, he could have gone the other way, taken the trip over, try to quit. He didn't do that, so I think, he, you know, that he ha- he seems to have a perspective and a game plan, and also I was really impressed just to, uh, when he, after the final, his speech, our friend Blair Henley was doing the uh, doing the post match and just the way he handled himself that he seemed genuinely gracious and he had a gratitude about being there about being able to play he thanked all the right people and he was yeah. really good with Hubie I just think he has a he just understands what the lifestyle and what the challenges are he just seems to have a good head on his shoulders yeah, so yeah. maybe that speaks a little bit to the intangibles that you talked about and also I know from sitting in a lot of Agassi press conferences especially later in his career he was always emphasizing you know, making the right choices, not just on the court, but off the court, whether that's, you know, you skip the extra glass of wine or you get your sleep. You know, it was always about making the right choices to put yourself in the best position to win. This kid seems like he has a little bit of a wisdom at 20 years old about how to do that. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Um, uh, Staying on the American tip, interesting week, to say the least, for 26-year-old Christian Harrison. I mean, he's been through so much in his career. I'll run, I'll run down some of his surgeries. Left femur in 2009, right hip 2013, left hip 2014, right shoulder 2014, right wrist 2014. There's, four, there's three surgeries in 2014. No, make it another one. Right adductor in 2014, left adductor, left femur 2018, eight surgeries in total. You guys know the story. I mean, he finally found his way back to the court, coming into Delray Beach at 789, qualifies, and then starts to reel off wins and makes it all the way to the semis. That was a great story. Unfortunately, the anti-mask stance that he, that he took, or maybe that people interpreted him taking, I guess he kind of took it too. It was hard for me personally because I was watching the story, the player, the, the maturation of Harrison having this great breakthrough moment, and I found it to be a little bit discouraging that the kind of the politics and the and the negativity crept into his um, week, and that there was a lot of negative news about the fact that he declined an interview with Blair on court after his first or second win, I think. And I think it all happened very innocently. He did it because he didn't want to wear the mask on, on during the interview for whatever reason. It's a very controversial topic right now, but. Uh, so it turned out to be a very positive story and also a very negative story. So I don't, in the end, I don't know, really know what to make of it. Um, but, I mean, I certainly don't agree with Christian Harrison's st- stance on the mask or anybody who's anti-mask right now, given that we're seeing 4,000 dead Americans per day over the last few days and almost 400,000 now overall. And, I mean, just look at this pandemic. Why would you want to take anything, any sort of stance against masks? But um, I digress, and I don't want to go too deep into this, but... Uh, I'll just throw it to you guys, Richard. Help save me here. <laughs> save me, please. Uh, I don't know if I could have much more. I thought it was, you said it well. You know, I, I mean, like, I don't want to be political. I don't want to be about right and left, anything like that. It's just right and wrong, you know. It's you got to wear a mask, man. That's just the way it is. We all want to be healthy. We all want our families to be healthy. You know, do the right thing. And I, I don't mean that in a political way or anything. I just mean do the right thing, wear a mask, help people, you know, right. be, be, be compassionate for other people. Be considerate for other people. Yes. So I hear totally where you're coming from. It's a shame that that did for some overshadow. I mean, if you weren't aware, if people who just watching weren't aware of that, the guy played lights out. He had a phenomenal tournament, and he was so fired up, and he, he handled himself great on the court with the exception of, like you said, all the mass stuff. So, um, God, 7.89 to do that. It was, And also the doubles. He had a good run, deep run in doubles, too. So let's hope he can... Uh, Let's hope he can stay healthy. The other thing is, a few times, he's one of those guys like Zverev, where he, instead of going to the towel, he'll use the bottom of his shirt to wipe his face. The guy has like an eight-pack ass. I mean, he looks yeah. like Conan the Barbarian. The yeah. guy is ripped, so 
whatever he's doing training wise, I would say keep doing it because he looks phenomenal condition, especially for all the surgeries that you recounted that he's been. His his conditioning was super impressive. Mm-hmm. Eric, thoughts? Save me again. Um, I mean, all I can say is yes, it was um, great to see him play well. Um, all we can say, all I can say, is like hopefully he's learned his lesson regarding the whole mask issue and moving forward can uh, be more responsible and hopefully he can uh, also you know translate this these results he had um, to, to more success later this year because he certainly had all the setbacks so all you know hopefully um, you know look forward and um, you know take learn lessons from the court and from the whole mask thing yeah I mean you know the mask thing it start I was really close to this tournament and I watched his match and I saw him kind of quickly decline that interview. I don't think he knew he was going to get fined for it. I think he just assumed that okay, then we won't do the interview. I even asked him about it um when he got into press that day, and I said, "What happened with you on the court there? um Were you just too emotional about the win?" And he said, "No, I just didn't feel like doing an interview in a mask and I figured like he just i don't know he just didn't want to be on camera wearing a mask for whatever reason. For me, I usually don't get crazy and really aggro about this kind of stuff. So I didn't even think about it in, in that, like, oh, no, you know, he's a troublemaker or whatever. And, and to his credit, he was the nicest guy. I interviewed him like three times, you know, at every one of his pressers during this tournament. He's such a good guy. And he's such a good kid. He's just got this belief that I don't – that I think – None of us here agree with and, you know, be more responsible. Think about other people. The points you guys are making are all well said. Uh, it's just a shame because his tennis was so great. The story was so great. I almost that's all I wanted to think about was how miraculous is it that this kid is finally getting where he needs to be. He's had so much help from his family, from his dad, Pat, of course, is a longtime coach and his brother, Ryan. A lot of people had a lot of faith in Christian. I mean, to go through eight surgeries in a decade and to, to never crack the top 150, and just to keep, just to play the way he played with the confidence he played with, it, I thought it was an amazing achievement. And yeah, I hope that he learns the lessons and plays along a little more. And then I also hope that he keeps um, keeps up the good tennis because I'm about the positivity here, you know. And I I don't want to just be ripping on people because of their beliefs so much. I just, just want to kind of be more patient with, with people that have different beliefs than myself. I mean. Like I said, I don't agree with the mask thing, but I'm still rooting for this guy to play better and to, to overcome these obstacles and to, you know, make a good career out of it. Is that wrong of me? Yeah, and it's, a, you know, it, it is a great story. Everything he's been through, I mean, you could, I mean, people would, would have quit over and over. This guy never, ever quit. So maybe that can be the larger lesson or the larger story. And hopefully he can stay healthy for his sake and keep playing because you see, he's a fun player to watch, too. He mixes it up, uses all the court, takes the ball earlier than a lot of the other Americans, too. So there's a lot, there's a lot there. And obviously he's got this. Uh, very, very deep desire, everything he's been through. The other thing I would say is it shows us, we always talk about, oh, the depth, the depth of the game. It's a guy 789 that almost gets to a final of an ATP tournament. I mean, that's huge. Yeah, it was cool. He, uh, he upset Christian Guerin, but Guerin really wasn't himself in that, in that match, but that's another story. But I guess the last thing on Delray Beach I'll say is that uh, Hubie Hercatch played pretty damn well all the way through, and, and he didn't face a top 100 opponent, but he really took care of business against Corda in the final, and I just love this person in terms of his personality. I love his game. Really just just a great kid. Very happy for him that he got his second ATP title. Yeah, absolutely. And also, to, you know, Eric talked to earlier about Sebi Corda's movement. I mean, Hub- Hubie, for his side, he moves really well. He defends well. They had a few rapid-fire net exchanges where you saw his reach, and, you know, he came off that doubles title with Felix in uh, Paris indoors a few months back, I mean, he he really played well. Like you said, he didn't beat a top 100 player, but he did everything he had to do. And also that he's kind of a transplanted Floridian now that he lives down there. And also after Iga's win for Poland, God, mm. got to feel great about Polish tennis right about now. Yeah, Eric, what do you think about um, Hubert Herka? Do you think he's a maybe top 10 player at some point, or like a guy that can be a steady top 10? Or he's he's definitely got some potential. Definitely has some potential. Um, yeah, like I said, I think it, you kind of have to kind of see how the rest of the year turns out. Um, be interesting to see um, what happens uh, down under with him. And uh, yeah, I mean, again, one of those players that sort of is on the upside and how he kind of handles the additional uh, attention. Um, that's always a big part of it. So 
have to wait and see. Yeah, he had a strong start last year, if I recall, at the ATP Cup, which leads me to believe that he's kind of good in January. I'm kind of I'm expecting mm-hmm. I'm expecting a nice push from him in Australia, but we'll see. Um, let's move on and talk about kind of sum up the week a little bit. There were um, there's also a tournament in Antalya, Turkey, with that. To be honest, I hardly even saw a one bit of. But starting with you, Eric, can you give me some names, maybe two or three names of players that you were impressed by, other than Sabalenka, who we've already talked about, and Seb Korda? You got any other names of players you got on your radar after what you saw last week? Well, I guess I just kind of want to switch gears over to the the qualifying for the Australian Open. Good Um, idea. I love it. That took place, um, and just some of the names that popped out for me. Um, on the women's side, of course, Svetlana Parankova uh, qualifies, so that means that she's going to be yet again a dangerous floater yes. in a major. And if she uh, gets a good draw, then look out. Um, also, uh, the Rebecca Marino, uh, great the Canadian, story. who left the who left the game and has since come back. What a it's a great story to see that she qualified. Uh, Tamea Babos, of course, uh, yep. another uh, dangerous floater. And then the Francesca Jones story um, from Great Britain. Uh, what That's such an inspiring story uh, that she was able to qualify for her first major. Um, so that was, imp- for the women, that was what impressed me. And then, of course, on the men's side, um, seeing Bernard Tomic uh, qualify. Unbelievable. Um, Unbelievable. Well, maybe unbelievable, not not unbelievable. I mean, this is a guy who again confounds um, c- confounds so many, but yet when he seems committed to tennis, he 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 shows he has the talent. So yes. it's it's just um, now that he's going to be back in Melbourne, um, who knows? But um, if nothing else, if he can showcase his talent, then that's all we can hope for. Well, good point about Bernard Tomic, and you're right. It's not unbelievable. We know he's a very talented player. I think he's 17-10, and 10, lifetime main draw at the Australian Open. And also, what's interesting about this year, he played three three-setters in qualifying. He's dead tired. He's out of shape. He'd probably get smoked in the first round if it was like it normally is with the qualifying leading right into the main draw. But now he's got a couple of weeks to get his energy back. He could be he could be a bit of a danger in Melbourne. Um, you also mentioned... Thank you for bringing up the qualities, Eric. That, that was great. You also mentioned Francesca Jones. Richard, you wrote about her for Tennis Now, and um, you know a little bit about her story. What do you, how amazing is it that this woman has cracked, cracked the door and is going to be in a main draw at a Grand Slam? Yeah, it's so inspiring. You know, she was born with that genetic condition. She has uh, three fingers and a thumb on each hand, so she's missing. She's not playing with five fingers, and she has four toes on her left foot, three toes on her right foot. So just think about how explosive professional tennis is, just to keep your balance when you don't have the same number of toes, just to change direction, something we all take for granted when we play whatever level we play. And also the racket, you know, she has the smaller grip, but even just making grip changes when you don't have the full complement of fingers. And also her her attitude is just so positive and how she's trying to use this as a platform because the doctor told her when she was a little kid, you know, you'll never be able to play. You just you gotta balance. You just do it. And she's had surgeries, and she just totally was committed to this kind of impossible dream. And, you know, she's only 20 years old to make it, and she's a top 300 player. I really would love to see her get the kind of draw where we see her on a show court or something because – you know, her story yes. is larger than tennis, and she seems to really, really be a great ambassador for, for, for everything she's been through to be so positive. It's, it's kind of moving. Yeah. Very well said, Richard. Thank you for that. And keeping in with the qualifiers, since Eric got, got us started, Sarah Irani is back in the main draw. That's, so expect some more spice from her in Melbourne. Um, who else? Uh, Carlos Alcaraz, the 17-year-old, will make his first main draw appearance. Everybody's going to be watching this kid. Um, there's some other ones too. There's a lot of interesting names coming out of qualities. And again, I, I kind of enjoy the fact that we do get a couple weeks to kind of get to know some of these names and maybe um, give them a little time to regroup and uh, to get ready for to make some damage. Uh, Michael Moe, the American qualified. Um, there was an interesting name that I keep stumbling over, Batik van de Sanschulp of the Netherlands. I don't know who he is, but I'm, I'm anxious to find out. Um and there was two uh, two veterans there, Sergei Stakovsky, uh, who's still around. 
Yeah. Go around and he beat Federer Wimbledon, that guy. He can play. He's yeah. 30, 35 now. So, and, and Victor Troitsky's in as well. So, again, Troitsky is a player who certainly, uh, on a good day, can, can be difficult for anyone. So, um, um, some, some, some veterans... Some veterans in there. Yeah. And, yeah, and also just what Eric said earlier about, to me, Babos, you know, the, the reigning Australian Open doubles champion with Mladenovic, and her last qualifying match, I think she played Shmidlova, who had a really nice Roland Garros mini run there, so that was a yeah. tough, tough way to qualify. She really earned her way in, and Jeannie Bouchard not qualifying because I thought she had kind of picked it up uh, kind of in spurts in 2020. That was a little bit of a bummer. Yeah, it's tough. You, you could... <laughs> You got to win three consecutive matches, or you're not getting in. Yeah. That's not easy to do. Speaking of Rebecca Marino, the, one of the, the early names you brought up, Eric, um, now 30 years old, has not made a Grand Slam appearance since 2013. Didn't know if she was going to come back to the game for many years, right? So yeah, great story. And again, we've got a couple weeks to write about these players, which is nice because usually the qualies funnel into the main draw. The main draw starts, and you've forgotten about anybody any of the qualifiers who didn't actually move on in the main draw. So this is this is kind of an interesting part of this slam this year due to these unforeseen and horrible circumstances, but, yeah, a little silver lining. Um, and, and, Richard, you didn't give me three names other than... Oh, yeah, I would say, you know, the one who really stopped, popped out for me was um, Maria Zachary. I thought yes. she really... Matches I saw, I didn't see every match, but the, she beat quality play. She beat Mugu and uh, Kenan back to back. Coco again the rematch, and I was impressed with the way she was really going after her serve. She's always had the ability to pop the serve, but I felt like first and second serve she was really attacking and really getting her body behind the ball, getting her body into the court. I thought she served really aggressively. I mean, she had matches where she had double digit aces. Now I know a lot of several of the players said that was one of the faster hard courts they've played on in the last couple of years. Some part of that is the surface also, but I thought her mindset, the way she really attacked the match in the Coco match, she was down a double break in that match. And she just, once she got rolling, she really uh, steamrolled. And it, and it just reminds you what a phenomenal athlete she is. Cause I have a lot of respect for Coco's movement and her speed around the court. And a few times she tried drop shotting soccer and she can run with anybody. She's a really Phenomenal athlete, really fun to watch. So I was impressed with her and, uh, you know, Demon Hour. I mean, to come mm. through, you know, like you said, that was a tournament that was kind of overshadowed by everything else going on. But to beat Gofan was a quality win, and then it was an anticlimactic final because Bublik had the injury, the twisted ankle. But still, I mean, Demon Hour came through, did what he had to do, and to build on that U.S. Open, I believe, the first major quarterfinal. Let's not forget, he's still a young guy. He's got his whole future ahead of him and you know he's going to be sky high for melbourne especially coming in off off this result so i think that's great yeah. great for him and demon or missed melbourne last year he trained so hard that he actually got hurt right before it didn't get to play he was gutted about that so yeah one of these days he's going to make a deep run there and people are going to freak out and go nuts and it's going yeah. to be fun i absolutely absolutely love this player the way he covers the court the speed the intensity the 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 gets that he makes are just mind-blowing I'll add a couple names yeah, to it. No matter what the score is in the mat, the guy plays every point with an electricity. Even you see his body kind of moving like he's just like plugged into a circuit. I mean, he's so he's so energetic, and he's, he makes you want to go play tennis. He's so into it. You know, it's <laughs> great does. to see. I know. You love that. The players that make you want to go play, those are them. They, most of yeah. them do, let's be honest. But, but some of them make you want to play more than the others. I'll add a couple of names to my list. Elena Rybakina looks very good. The only player that took a set off, Sabalenka, She's just a force to be reckoned with, um, especially on the hard courts. I think she's going to have another good year. Marta Kostyuk was was great. He's still only 18 years old. I mean, it was three years ago that she reached the third round of the Australian Open as a 15-year-old. She's a lot more mature now. She played some great tennis, racked up some good wins, and reached the semifinals of Abu Dhabi and was also just a pleasure to listen to in her press conferences. She's just a really outgoing, personable person that – um, as I just hope she becomes a big star because I think it'll be just the endless caustic press conferences will be a good thing for everybody. So, mm-hmm. yeah, there was a lot of great tennis. Um, I think that we've pretty much hit our limit, so let's go parting thoughts. Eric, I know you've got some things to add. Um, the only thing I just want to add is, I guess, this story that broke uh, yesterday regarding uh, Diana Yastremska yes. getting on a plane to Melbourne, and um, I guess Svetlana Kuznetsova is posting some um, pictures on Instagram, um, and of course this has raised 
a lot of questions since Yastremska is technically on a provisional suspension yeah. uh, from WADA. And so, yeah, I, again, this sort of is up there kind of go, going back to the start of the, the, start of the show. Um, not sure how they're going to handle that, but um, anyway, <laughs> just another intriguing storyline. Yeah, what, um, what is your... Waiting for Melbourne. If you can... If I allowed you to speculate, what do you think is going on? Or does she have an appeal underway? Is she just hopeful? Is she going to really just take this flight and maybe not even play? And did, is that what they want when they're trying what, to minimize the amount of people traveling? Sorry. From what ahead. I understand, um, she has the right to play, but but only pending an appeal. Right. And but the ITF has said that she has not yet made an appeal, so I'm not quite sure. Like you said, I'm not sure if she's planning to appeal when she gets to Melbourne or or what, or she's trying to hopefully maybe hope for, for some like a, a grace, uh, I you mean, know, a kind of a grace period or something that could allow her to compete. I have Melbourne. I have it's up to up to the officials in Melbourne and of course the ITF and all that. So I'm not. It's a little. It's a little odd. It is, right? <laughs> yeah. It's, it's either either she believes she's got a really good chance to play, or she's just a little bit. Um, a lot of wishful thinking. Maybe, maybe she obviously she knows a few things we don't. Um, what what has she said about her um, her positive test? Did she not say a whole lot? Did she have an excuse like a lot of these players do, where you know it was in the beef, it was in my pasta, or is is there some reason that she believes she's innocent? I, from what I understand, she did post something on her uh, one of her social media accounts. Uh, basically kind of saying that the whole thing was a complete surprise to her, that she'd never used any performance-enhancing drugs, and that to her that that the test was not was negligible. Oh, yeah. So that's kind of her defense. Yep. But that's the only thing that she posted on social media a couple weeks ago. So. Yeah. Richard, you, what, do you, what, have you, what does your intel give you on this one? The only stuff I've read from her perspective, I thought she was saying it was a sub, maybe a supplemental thing or something. She was definitely saying it was inadvertent, the stuff yeah. that I had read from her, but I haven't seen the latest statement, but it, it's a mess. I mean, it's a, it's an absolute mess. Yeah, this is a tough situation for, uh, this is frustrating for, I think, the fans and the media because most people seem that get tested positive seem to have a, a story about it, why, why it didn't really happen, and if... I don't know. She's well, the, the the famous the famous Sarah Tortellini defense, but <laughs> I digress. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm, I hope that those are true. I mean, we've went we've been through a lot of these. There, uh, there was Troisky when he was afraid of the needles. He had a weird situation going on. Chilich, Chilich had supplements from his mom. That you know, yeah. it's like I mean, is anybody just flat out doping? I guess that I guess that's not the well, right. And of course, and of course, the all time all time famous or infamous was the famous, you know, Pamela, uh, Richard Gasquet. <laughs> <defense. laughs> but it seems like there's more of those type of stories than actual people getting busted. I guess the one person that really got busted was Maria Sharapova that really everything came out basically what she had done. And it, she actually really wasn't even doping. They just changed the rules on her. So I don't know. It's tough. It's tough. I mean, credit right. the, credit the ITF. They have a big fish. This is not like a world number 2000 that we were never going to hear of. This is one of the game's top players, so it's it's an unfortunate situation. And she'll these, it just go uh, ahead. No, go ahead. you you go ahead. I'm just rambling. I, no, I was I, just going to gonna say it, it just it just it just seems like I said it just seems odd that she would fly all the way to Melbourne with this sort of question mark, and then if if it turns out that she's not going to be allowed to compete, then she's she's flown a long way for nothing. Yeah. Right, let's let's place our bets. Do, do you think Diana Yastremska gets her appeal and wins it and gets into the main draw, or do you think she flies back home playing no tennis? Well, given the way these appeals and the, take the amount of time it usually takes, mm-hmm. I, I don't think it's going to be resolved within by the time the Australian Open starts. Yeah. I mean, I just these things take time. And Richard, what's your what's your bet? Yeah, I would say based on the fact that she's flown there, she's got to already have the appeal and process or filed. So then, like Eric said, it takes time for them to process the appeal. I would think she's working on the assumption, I'm appealing, and, you know, innocent until proven guilty, I'm allowed to play until you come up, you know, show me the goods, basically. 
Yeah, yeah, I'm going to vote for you guys. I'm going to think that she doesn't get allowed to play. She's not allowed to play. I think in the court of public opinion, I don't think Yostremska has done that well. A lot of, a lot of, you know. I mean, I've well, always, yeah. I've been amazed by her talent. Yeah, I think that's she's, a very diplomatic way of putting. She like a lot of what? What is it? The the main rip on her is that she's taken a lot of mystery um, medical timeouts and matches. I don't know right. what else she's done other than that besides this doping thing. Um, but I haven't seen her. I've talked to her. I've always thought she's been a pretty nice person. But but I mean, not a lot of people on tour seem to feel the same way. If I'm not mistaken. So I don't know if those yep. things matter when you when you go when you go in front of the ITF. They shouldn't, right? It shouldn't matter at all. It should it should be all about the facts. Um, so I mean, exactly, exactly. Yeah, I you know that'll be an interesting story to keep an eye on over the next two weeks. Anything else we should be looking out for while these players quarantine? Besides, you know, the gratuitous um, hotel workout videos, which we're already starting to see on social media. You know, I guess the thing I'm looking forward to the most is the players that we've missed. You know, some of the players I just like watching stylistically that we've missed, like Ash Barty or Kyrgios, especially Bianca Andreescu. I always love watching her style. So just to see how they, you know, it's been so long since they've actually played matches. And Ash Barty's won golf titles, I think, or gone deep in golf tournaments. But it's been so long since we've seen them in meaningful matches. I'm just really excited to see them play just for the the fun of watching them play, but also see what, what they bring. I, I I agree. I'm I'm kind of looking forward to seeing Ash Barty because she just hasn't played in so long. Yeah. Um, how that's gonna how that's gonna work for and you know trying to win the Australian Open, which of course is more added pressure because she is Australian. Of course, a lot of people thought she might have should have won last year, but uh, so it's going to be. Of all the players, I think it's going to be interesting how she kind of handles the next couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Nick Kyrgios, my God, he'll—he's—he's almost he's forgot about him too. I'll be looking forward to see him play. But yeah, it's—it's it's fun. I've seen a lot of an, a lot of good social media, a lot of positive stuff about players being grateful for the opportunity. Felix Ociali, seen Medvedev. I mean, I saw there's like 20 tweets that I just liked today on Twitter that I'm going to put in a little article. Um, so a lot of positivity and a lot to look forward to. And I thank you guys for um, sharing some of the tennis love and helping me recap the first week or so. Let's, let's uh, reconvene maybe closer to um, after the draw, which is February 4th. Maybe we can talk again and uh, get pumped up for the Australian Open, which again is set to start, I believe, on February 8th, which will be the 7th if you're stateside. So Eric and Richard, you guys are awesome. And I was um, very happy to speak with you today. Have a great weekend. Let's talk again soon. Thanks so much, guys. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. This edition of the Lucky Let Cord Podcast is a wrap. Thank you so much for listening. Want to let you guys know where to find us on social media. On Facebook, facebook.com slash tennis now. On Twitter, at tennis underscore now. And of course, on the web, www.tennisnow.com. Thanks to Eric and Richard for joining. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll see you in the week before the Australian Open.